Welcome to the Dr. Lori Mars podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex-fiance to breast cancer, Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is the Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program. Guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus, and Chef Brittany Giroudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Giroudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on The Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm super excited to welcome the author of Healthy Habits Suck by Dr. Dana Lee Bagley. How are you today? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So Dr. Dana is a health psychologist that has some focuses on, you know, of course, health, but also workplace wellness, psychology. And so we'll get into a bunch of that. But before we dig into there, I mean, first of all, the book, Healthy Habits Suck, <laughs> uh, the, the title totally drew me in. And then it was recommended by a good friend of mine, Dr. Baskar. And uh, but before we even go there, I am always curious what leads people down the path of health psychology and behavior change. Um, honestly, if I hadn't become a physician, I'm pretty sure I'd be in this field myself. So please share your story. Yeah, so I've been a health psychologist for a long time. I worked on the medical, surgical, and cancer care units at the hospital uh, here in Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada. Uh, what I love about health psychology is that it's really helping people who are having really um, common struggles in kind of unusual circumstances. So trying to deal with things like cancer or liver disease, um, both chronic disease and life-threatening disease. And there's so many things that we can do that actually help people cope with that, that help people get through that. Um, and we have a lot of science that can actually make their suffering less and improve the quality of their life. And so that's what I really love about being a health psychologist. Awesome. Was there something, some point in your life that made you decide hey, I want to do this particular field of work? Like, where was that, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, in grad school, I was exposed to how you could apply psychology to health problems. And, and that just became really fascinating to me because, again, so many people struggle with health problems. Chronic disease is such a big uh, issue for so many people. And to know that we could help make their lives better um, and have them struggle less. Uh, I always say we can use science to kind of be work smarter instead of work harder and improve the quality of their life. And so the book was really about for the people who might never have the chance to meet with a health psychologist, what kind of tips could I give them? How could I share some science-based information? And again, translating that information into everyday things people could do. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, so I'm curious about, you had just briefly mentioned a second ago about decreasing suffering. So, you know, suffering, of course, I think is a mindset almost in the sense of, you know, how your reaction is. Could you describe suffering in the sense so we kind of have a baseline understanding of what we're alleviating? 
from that standpoint. Yeah, so I would say, you know, there's an expression, um, you know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, um, that it's kind of difficult to be a human. <laughs> and it's kind of difficult to be a human, especially in the world we live in now, but uh, really all the time, it's kind of hard to be a human. And so um, we don't have to struggle as much with it, though, if we accept that maybe like suffering is part of the deal, right? So we often have this view like happiness is the default and therefore anything that's not happy is suddenly something bad or terrible, but maybe suffering is actually the default. And if that was the case, then anything good that happens is like a gift. Anything good that happens is like a moment of joy. And so I think we have it kind of backwards that we expect to be happy mm -hmm. all the time and then we're disappointed when it's not. Life is hard. There's a lot of difficult things to do if you want to have a meaningful life. And if we look at it that way, then you know we can help people struggle less and do more meaningful things with their life, not necessarily for like happiness all the time, but to live like a vibrant, meaningful life. I often say like, if your life was a painting, is it full of color? But to have a painting of your life that's full of color requires some like difficult things. It requires doing hard things and experiencing tough emotions. That's like part of, it's like the ticket of admission for a meaningful life. Mm. So do you feel like, and I'm curious, just because our own evolution of my own company, Mora, and, you know, reaching out and having people referred folks to us as far as patients and then it's almost disappointing in the sense that people well at least from our standpoint people understand they're told what to do right we under educate them we kind of utilize the motivational interviewing and those techniques say one thing but don't do it so where do you feel like that delta is like what is what is the difference here is it an understanding like how do we get the people who say they're motivated or say I even hate the word motivation because it's so fickle. You know, they say they're ready for change or want to change, but they they don't put in the action. Like, so where, how do you address that? I'm that is so curious to me. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I think it goes down to the fact that like most of the healthy habits we have to do suck. They're hard, and and if you come from that perspective, then we have to find some really good reasons to do them. And so, there's a big difference between like you know, how motivated are you to be happy and how motivated are you to get up at 6 a.m. and go for a run? Like those two things have much different costs to them when we get down to the specifics. So we really need to ask people their readiness for a behavior in particular, rather than like general readiness for change. Uh, we talk about that like a traffic light, right? So you can be green light, you're ready, yellow light, ambivalent, red light, not ready for change. And it goes behavior by behavior, right? So you might be green light to quit smoking, but red light to give up, you know, drinking pop. And so uh, we want to find those specific behaviors. And then people just really need a lot of help because you basically have to go against what our survival brain wants us to do, kind of like the brain developed in cave people times, um, the instinctive, automatic, unconscious part of our brain. To do a healthy habit, we have to use our prefrontal cortex or our frontal lobe, which is like the willpower, you know, self-control locus of our uh, in our brain. Um, but that is like a battery. And so it will wear out. And we use that battery all the time. We use it to, you know, wait in line. We use it to drive to work. We use it to get dressed in the morning. And so we will wear out that battery. You drain it. And there's sometimes not enough battery left to do these healthy habits, which always go against our survival brain. And they often go against what the environment is encouraging us to do. We live in unhealthy environments that are not neutral. They absolutely encourage like unhealthy behaviors. And so you have a lot of things stacked up against people in terms of that daily, those daily behaviors that they have to do. And so often people are entirely hugely motivated, but then when they get into their own context, there are many more barriers and drains on their battery than they expected. Uh, this is also true when we think about social determinants of health. If you're worried about housing insecurity, physical you know, safety, uh, financial security, a lot of your battery is going to dealing with those things. And there's not a lot left to do other things as well in lots of environments. It is much harder to find whole foods, to find safe places to exercise. And so those barriers get bigger and their batteries are smaller because they have to deal with all kinds of other things facing them. Uh, and so I think people are often very well-intentioned, but uh, they run out of battery. 
And we would be much better off as a society to create environments that are healthier so we are not relying constantly on people's batteries, right? So the biggest change we ever made in smoking rates was when we banned indoor smoking. That doesn't require individual willpower. That is a societal thing that we did that changed people's behavior because it came, became that much harder and more inconvenient uh, to smoke when you had to go outdoors. And so it changed a lot of people's behavior. That doesn't rely on people's willpower, right? And right now, most of our healthy habits, the way we handle chronic disease is all about just relying on people's willpower. And that's a terrible plan. That's so, so very true. Just coming as from the medical side of things, you look at a hospital, oh, it's the worst food. Like, and especially if you're on call and you're in the hospital in the middle of the night and you're hungry, all there is is a vending machine, right? So if you didn't bring something and prepare something in your sleep deprived state going into call, you're really uh, struggling. And it's interesting because then when you speak to the authorities above who can make these decisions, they're like, well, if we remove these things, people would be, you know, cause a riot war. I was like, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, I think if we feed them well and make them feel better, they're going to be more engaged at work and you're going to see a change. So tell me, how is your um, approach? First of all, let's, we'll get there in a second. Um, I'll go back to the workplace piece and the environment because I, I know that's kind of where your focus is, but I'd love to, let's just dive a little bit more into the book and the ACT therapy type of discussion and one of my favorite things you kept saying in the book because I listened to the audible I know it wasn't you who was reading it right it was someone else um but still it was I could totally hear your personality I'm assuming um was congratulations you're a well-functioning human (laughs) oh my gosh I love that and so um anyway I was like the moment I saw that and your plan based all this anyway it was fantastic but um can you tell us like what was the the goal of writing the book how did you get into the you know, they explain the ACT therapy and how'd you do that? And why did you build this around that? I'm, and I'm curious if there's any other elements outside of ACT therapy that's in the book that you'd like to share. Yeah, so acceptance and commitment therapy um, or ACT therapy is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Uh, It's sort of the newest version of it. So it uses all the things that worked well from the previous generations of CBT and then adds some additional elements that we have also found to be effective. And what really, I was trained originally as a psychologist in CBT and kind of classic CBT, um, kind of Beck style CBT. But um, when I started working with people with health conditions, the CBT model doesn't work as well because the CBT model is a very well-established, very empirically supported. So if it works for you, please keep doing it. That is not my message to stop. Um, But it's very well designed for disorders like uh, anxiety disorders or major depressive disorder, where there actually is kind of this like um, the official term is like distortion and thinking about how you're processing information. And you can find that uh, in those disorders. But when you start to work in health conditions uh, and somebody has cancer and they're worried about dying from cancer, that is not a distortion. They are quite likely to die of cancer. Maybe not tomorrow. It might be 15 years from now. Right. But um, that's not a distortion. And so the model kind of falls down uh, when you start working in those kinds of populations. And that's when I um, learned about ACT and I started learning ACT. I'm now um, called a peer reviewed trainer in ACT, which is a designation awarded by the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, which is the international organization that houses ACT. There's roughly maybe 150 people worldwide that have that designation. Um, and, and my era, area has always been, how do you apply ACT to health problems, chronic disease, behavior change? And what I really love about ACT is that to me, it's not a model of disorder. It's actually a model about how humans function. It incorporates a lot of evolutionary psychology. So how are our brains hardwired? How do they function? Um, There is often this huge mismatch between how our brain, our automatic brain works and our modern world that we find ourselves in. And so some of the adaptations that worked really well when we were cave people and we died when we were 30, like our life expectancy was 30, right? Just don't work well in the modern world and the things that we face. And so what I love about ACT is a very humanizing, normalizing uh, intervention you don't ever have to say that there's something wrong with your thinking in fact we're often saying as you said congratulations you're a well-functioning human Uh, Mm -hmm. because the things that you're struggling with are actually just how humans are hardwired it's just a mismatch with our modern world and so let's help you understand how humans are hardwired how your brain works 
So then we can come up with a plan that is going to be way more effective because it takes that into account. It already takes into account how humans function. Uh, and so um, I use it every day, right? Uh, there's an expression about the first person you should do act with is yourself. Uh, to me, this explains human behavior, right? Um, and so, for example, when I left my job at the hospital after wave two, because I, for my own burnout reasons, but it was also because I felt like that wasn't the best place that for me to like contribute to the world anymore. It was a very value-driven job up to that point and values an actor about how you want to show up as a person. It was a place where I did really meaningful work. I was working in the cancer center when I left that job. Uh, so clearly that is a meaningful job, but the mental health needs of the planet had gone up so much because of COVID, like I left after wave two of COVID, that I was like, this is not where I'm supposed to be anymore. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, decisions I had, I had to leave like a pensionable full-time position. I'm a, you know, 50% uh, single mom. Um, and so uh, it was a big deal to decide to leave that position, but it was a value-driven decision because I felt really strongly like this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not how I'm supposed to be contributing to the world. And so it wasn't just about getting away from something bad. It was about moving towards something that mattered to me. And that allowed me to like sort of tolerate the distress of um, leaving that secure job. Uh, and we call that rumble strips. And it's one of the things we talk about in the book. Um, rumble strips like on the highway when you hit them and they're kind of bumpy and they make you go back to the center of your lane. Our brains give us rumble strips when we try to do new things because there's a principle our brain works on, which is the devil you do know is better than the devil you don't. It's always safer from a survival perspective to keep doing what you're doing, even if your life sucks because <laughs> survival brain doesn't care about quality of life, just about survival. So you're always safer to deal with the things you already know. Um, and so there were a lot of rumble strips I had to get over, a lot of distress and um, uncertainty to tolerate in leaving that job and doing what I thought I needed to do next. Um, and that's what ACT teaches you to do is not to wait for the rumble strips to go away, but actually how to uh, be more willing to experience them in the service of your values, in the service of doing things that are important to you, that matter to you, that help us live vibrant, meaning lives, meaningful lives. And so, um, again, I use ACT every single day. Uh, it's how I make sense of the world. It's how I make sense of my family members. It's how I make sense of um, patients and clients and uh, workplaces. There has not been a single thing that I haven't been able to apply it to because, again, it's very much a, a model of human behavior. Uh, and I think it, again, it helps reduce human suffering because um, we're still doing difficult things, right? We haven't gotten rid of like kind of the pain of being a human um, or the rumble strips of doing meaningful things, but we're doing it, you know, more effectively and helping people not struggle so much um, uh, because they understand themselves better and they understand how to live a more meaningful life. Mm, well, that's great. There's so much here we can talk about. Um, I guess Siri thinks I'm talking to her too. Um, there's a few different things in the book. Uh, yes, the rumble strips are great because we've all been in that place where maybe we kind of veered off and, you know, we're kind of jolted to be mindful of the current situation of what we're doing. Um, but you also speak to the bus passengers. Could you talk about them? Yeah. I yeah, love the so little passengers Exactly. Passengers on the bus are, you know, a very classic metaphor used in ACT. Uh, and it basically helps us understand, again, how humans function, which is that our survival brain, that automatic unconscious brain, you know, um, is responsible for things like emotions and automatic thoughts. And so if you imagine that you are a bus driver uh, and there are passengers on your bus, and sometimes they're kind of like bossy and annoying and they tell you where to go. And if you imagine that those passengers were like your thoughts and feelings, right? So there might be an anxious passenger that's like, oh my gosh, don't go there. Or maybe there's an angry passenger, like, I can't believe this is happening to us. Uh, and sometimes they take us places we didn't mean to go. And so, uh, but if we try to ignore them or kick them off the bus or uh, pretend they're not there, they usually get louder and more boisterous. Most of us cannot find a way to permanently never think or to permanently never feel things. In fact, that'd probably be a sign that something was really, really wrong if you were not thinking or having any emotions. Uh, and so, if you picture being a bus driver and there's a passenger on your bus who says, hey, could you drop me off at my house? you know, our typical response as a bus driver would probably be like, well, no, I have a route to follow. 
And that's kind of the relationship we're trying to cultivate with our own thoughts and feelings, with our own survival mind, is that we can acknowledge what it says, but we don't let it take over the bus. Because typically when your survival mind is in charge, when those passengers are in charge, they don't tend to lead you towards value-driven behavior. Uh, they tend to lead you to short-term solutions that work really well in the short term, but do not help build a life that matters in the long term. And so our goal there then is to know what your root is, which we talk about values, understanding uh, who you want to be, how you want to contribute to the world, how you want to care about people, um, and then having skills to deal with the passengers so they're less likely to take over the bus. And those, again, are act-based skills that we describe in the book. Awesome. And so when you said you're applying, just so that we had a little bit more context around act when you say you apply them to all the people in your life and other stories, could you share some of those maybe stories on what that looks like and how you utilize those skills every day? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, sometimes, so again, we often use the term value in our ordinary life. Like we'll say things like I value financial freedom, but in act, that's not what we mean by values In act. What we mean by values is how you're going to show up as a human. So it's very specific about um, you know, how you're going to contribute to the world, how you're going to show up, um, how you're going to care about people or connect with people. And values are kind of always available to us, right? Um, we can achieve goals, and, and but there may also be value-driven reasons for those goals. And it's a different way to go through life to think about being value-driven than goal-driven, uh, because value-driven is more like a compass. Um, and so it gives us, you know, a way of thinking about the world. And so, for example, if you're thinking about uh, whether you should take this job or not, people will typically come up with this, like pros and cons list, right, of like pros and cons of taking the job. But a different way of going about that is, you know, uh, what are my values? How do I want to contribute to the world? How do I want to care about people? And does taking this job move me closer or further away from the person I want to be? Right. Same with relationships. We come up with this list of things we want in a partner. Right. Uh, but Another way of thinking about that is what kind of qualities do I need in somebody who will help me show up as the person I want to be? How, who do I want to be? And does being in this relationship move me closer or further away from the person I want to be kind of on average, right? And so these are the ways that we often talk about, you know, our company has um, values about what we're trying to do in the world. Um, again, you want to think about not, not what do you want to get out of life, but what do you want to give to life, right? I want, you know, I value financial freedom is about what you're going to get from life, right? But I want to be someone who helps reduce human suffering is what I'm going to give to life. And that's the values that we mean. So I often have, you know, um, patients or clients who will say like, how do I talk about values with my family without like telling them we're talking about values? I'm like, oh no, we're just talking about values. Like well, everyone in my life knows about values. Everyone has heard me say it. Everybody, you know, we have ongoing discussions about, right? Uh, when my son wants to play hockey or wants to do something else, we talk about like, what's the value-driven reason for doing that, right? If you can give me a value-driven reason for why this is important to you, then like I can support you. Right. Uh, that's how we guide our business decisions. It's how, you know, I guide my personal life and my professional life. And so we use it all the time to think about how am I moving towards or away from my values. Mm, that's awesome. So how how do you determine um, what it is that you value? Or can, like, what are some of the questions or how does how can someone go about Because if they've never really sat down and, you know, as we're always looking at particular goals, right? And outcomes, a, a particular end to a journey versus like, why am I making this journey to begin with? Can, can you give us some help on what are some very simple activities or questions or how would you approach someone to help that like this is a brand new concept? Yeah, and it often is a brand new concept for people. Um, there is a chapter in the book about exploring your values, but the kinds of ways you want to think about it is kind of what kind of qualities do I want to express? How do I want to show up in the world? And so, you know, there's um, an activity about uh, clarifying your values, which is like, you know, if you had a year to live, what would you do? What would you spend your time doing? Who would you spend your time with? How about if you had a month to live? How about an hour to live? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and to because when those kinds of moments happen for people, they often think about what really matters to me, what's most important to me. 
right? Having worked with uh, people going through cancer treatment, um, sometimes people afterwards, after going through cancer treatment, want to pretend like cancer never happened and go back to life exactly the way it was beforehand. But other people make use of that to think about what really matters to them and to make their lives more meaningful from that point forward. Uh, and I think that's honestly what happened to a lot of people during the pandemic as well, which is uh, we were often faced with, you know, our own mortality, um, you know, everyone has a limited amount of time on earth and none of us are guaranteed how much that is. Cancer patients are just more aware of that fact, right? But we should never take tomorrow for granted and never expect tomorrow to be a guarantee. And so if life is precious, how do you want to spend it? What do you want to give to the world? How do you want to show up? Uh, how would you want people to describe you if you could totally show up as the person you wanted to be, right? What matters to you about how you want to contribute to the world? And then the goal in ACT is to be psychologically flexible about how you express those values, right? And psychological flexibility, again, has its, a very specific meaning, which is about how can you be value-driven given the context? How can you have a variety of behavioral options? for expressing your values. And so, uh, which again, became a really big thing in the pandemic, if you couldn't travel because of travel bans, then what was the value about that for you? And how could we find a different way to express those values, right? So it's not gonna look the way you thought it was gonna look. It's not gonna feel the way you thought it was gonna feel, but it can still be an expression of your values. And that's one of the things we work with, you know, people who are uh, have chronic disease is that they're often limited in what they can do. They have, you know, restrictions because of their health. But I always say to them, we can for sure help you live a meaningful life. There's no question about that. It's just going to look different. It's not going to look the way you thought it was going to look. And frankly, for most of us, that's what happens, right? The life does not mm. turn out exactly the way we thought it was going to turn out. If we can, you know, be open to that and still reflect on our values and find new ways to express our values, then it's always available to us. We can always live a meaningful life. Hmm. Okay, that's fantastic. So I guess my question would go back to the book and the healthy habits piece. So how do we now we've defined and understand what a value-based life is or basing our choices and uh, you know, showing up every day, understanding, being mindful, right? Daily, because life is precious. And like you said, we're not guaranteed today or tomorrow. Honestly, we were here at this moment. When it comes to the context of healthy habits, how do we engage those two? Like someone's, because right. most of the time healthy habits, I mean, I understand the habit, the behavior, but most of the time people are still describing those as a goal of weight loss or improving yeah. blood sugars or whatever. How do you intertwine those two things? Yeah. So to me, health is not a value. <laughs> uh, mm. To me, health is a means to an end. Health is a way to uh, be able to express your values. It's a way of showing up and doing other things that are important to you. Um, now, if, if you already think health is a value to you and you're doing healthy habits, then don't change. That's fine. But if you are not doing your healthy habits, don't try to make health a value. It's not typically motivating enough to keep people going, right? Mm. So figure out what other things you would do. And so, you know, the question is, is not like, why do you want to lose weight? It's like, what will losing weight allow you to do? Uh, and people will say, you know, I want to lose weight so I can feel healthier, so I have more energy, so I can live longer. What are you going to do with that extra energy? What are you going to do with the extra years of life on earth? Why does that matter? Right? People often stop at the point where there's a bad health outcome. I, you know, if I have diabetes and I don't manage it, I could go blind. Well, do you need your eyes for anything? Like it sounds silly, but that's the question you want to ask yourself. What would you really miss about life if you were blind? Because that sort of, and again, we tend to try to uh, motivate people, like the healthcare system tries to motivate people through um, scaring them, the bad things that will happen. And that distress will get people started on behavior change, but it will never help sustain behavior change. And of course, the issue with healthy habits is you need to do it for a long time. In fact, you need to do it forever. And so a short-term burst is not going to help with your health. You have to figure out a reason to do it for the long-term. If you can connect that to your values, you now have a long-term reason for change. It's not for weight loss. It's so that you can go watch your kids play baseball. It's not, you know, to avoid going blind. It's because if I eat better when I have diabetes, I'm more clear-headed in the moment. I'm less moody. I'm less grumpy. And that helps me show up as the person I want to be right here, right now. So if I ask myself, do I want to go to the gym? The answer is no, I don't. It's really effortful and hard work, right? 
So the better question is not, do you want to go to the gym? The better question is, do you want to go to the gym or do you want to yell at your kid at bedtime, right? Because it's a recharging activity for me. It's going to put me in a better mood. It's going to make me more patient. It's going to help me show up as the person I want to be, whether that's in my workplace, in my hobbies, in my personal life. And so that's the reason to do it. The health benefits of going to the gym are just a side effect of being able to show up as the person I want to be. And so when we can connect those health behaviors, not to avoiding some bad health outcome, but how it's contributing to helping you be the person you want to be right here, right now, then we're willing to do difficult things. We do difficult things all the time in the service of our values, right? Then this is just one more difficult thing we do in the service of your values. You don't have to love the gym. You don't have to love exercise. If you do love exercise, that's awesome. Keep going. But if you don't love exercise, you don't have to convince yourself to love exercise. It can suck the whole time, but you know that it's contributing to you being the person you want to be today in this moment, as soon as you're done, right? Uh, and that is the reason to do these difficult health behaviors. Mm, and it also fantastic. never stops, right? You're not like, oh, I guess I'm done being a good parent, never going to do that ever again, <laughs> right? Whereas if you make like, like goals, like weight loss, like those kinds of things, the way we think about goals is once you're done, then you stop working on the goal. If you had a goal to go to university and you get your university degree, you don't then go back to university and keep going on the same degree, right? And so if you're successful at your goal, we stop doing the behaviors that got you there. But more likely, you're not going to be successful at your goal because you're trying to control something we don't actually have that much control over. And so then what's the point of trying if it's not getting me to my goal, right? Weight loss is a classic example of this, that people try to control their weight. But there are actually a huge number of factors that influence weight that we don't have direct control over, including things like our environment, but also genetics, things like that, right? So how much you eat and how much you exercise is only a very small piece of like weight management. Not to mention the fact that you're actually trying to like overcome mother nature, right? A human starving to death has been a problem for humans forever. And it continues to be. As we speak, there is someone on the planet starving to death. This is not a problem that humans have solved. And so our bodies and minds have system after system after system to make sure we don't starve to death. And all of those things get activated when we go on a diet uh, and try to reverse the effects of a diet. And so um, thinking about weight loss or weight management in terms of like a goal weight, uh, or thinking you have that much control over your weight is like not real science. We have proven that it is not real science and it is in fact the opposite. You need a lot of other supports to be able to have long-term weight loss and weight maintenance uh, because there are many biological factors there outside of your control. There's so much here. Um, okay, fantastic. So quick pivot to an interesting story. It's real quick with my own understanding, just as been as a physician, like, you know, we're not taught any of this in medical school. We're not, well, we're not taught about nutrition, healthy psychology, how to speak to patients regarding the true prevention, which is these behaviors, right? <laughs> um, and when I started the podcast seven years ago, that was my my curiosity of just like, why was someone able, you know, they were morbidly obese, 40 years, they suddenly have this revelation of like, man, I need to do some things. You know, the first clue was they changed their eating a healthy diet, but like, why were they able to keep it off now for 10 years? Like, what was the, what was that change mentally? And so it started me down the path just to speaking to people. That's why I love talking to folks like yourself, but just a caveat to that. I had a patient um, who had been smoking I think two to three packs of cigarettes a day for 40 years. And, you know, I've never smoked. I never drank. I've been, I'm one of those kind of weird, I enjoy exercise. I enjoy doing those things. And so, you know, for me, I'm always, I was always already encouraging patients to do those different things. It didn't matter. We tried, like you said, the, the scare tactic, the, I thought maybe you'll save money. You will, you wouldn't, you'll be able to be around people. You can, you don't have to be outside. And none of that mattered to him. Do you know what happened one time? He had one thing happen to him that he stopped and never desired to smoke again. He had, he goes, I was like, he came into me, he was Dr. Marvis. I stopped smoking. I'm like, well, it was nothing I did. What happened? And he said, you know, I was sitting there in my chair smoking and my granddaughter came up to me and she was crying. And she goes, and I asked her, dear, why, why are you crying? She goes, pop, pop. I learned in school that people who smoke are going to die and you smoke and you're going to die. And it just, 
broke his heart and he goes, I'm not going to die. And he put out a cigarette and never did it again. So obviously his value was his family, showing up for his family, being there, not being the cause of heartache. And that really speaks loudly because nicotine is one of the hardest things to give up. Um, when you talked about to patients, you know, that overcoming that. And um, it really is that shift in understanding what he values and what his impact yeah. of that behavior. And um, because it's not even lowering towards healthy behavior, but also walking away from unhealthy behavior too, that's a struggle. Um, but man, that that's that speaks volumes to what you're saying. So just out of more, um, I would say, personal question for you is as, because there's a lot of physicians who listen or healthcare providers, how would you encourage in the short time, you know, the short, in the context of a short, brief patient's interactions that we have, how can we utilize ACT? Where can we go to learn more? Or even patients, you know, besides your book, which is fabulous for the layperson, but from in a healthcare setting, what would you recommend? Yeah, so when I was at the hospital, we actually spend a lot of time training healthcare providers um, in mm. behavior change skills, including ACT, uh, within their scope of practice, obviously, um, because, um, again, there'll never be enough psychologists, there'll never be enough, like, behavior therapists. If you can encourage the rest of the system to have those behavior change skills, then you can actually make a difference, right? When patients are, like, non-compliant uh, and you send them to mm. psychology for, you know, a session, guess what? They don't show up <laughs> for, like, Right. if they're not showing up for their other appointments, right? But we did a case study with one woman who had two no-show appointments with me. She was a transplant patient, so uh, she wasn't taking her medication. That is life-threatening, right? But she had 91 other interactions with the healthcare system besides the two no-show with me. So if any of those other healthcare providers had the skill set to, to like help with her behavior change, uh, she maybe wouldn't have died from like losing her organ, right? Uh, through mm -hmm. Because she wasn't taking her medication. And so it is a really important uh, skill set that, you know, healthcare providers and physicians are not taught, uh, but it's really essential, especially because most of the diseases we deal with now are chronic disease. So one of the ways that I, you know, um, talk about this with uh, physicians is that, you know, the expression like do no harm has sort of turned into like avoid death. <laughs> like unintentionally, right. that's kind of what it's become in medicine and in healthcare is like, let's just prolong your life as long as possible. Let's help you avoid death for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. But that often results in some really crappy years of life as uh, towards right. the end of your life, uh, because we're just extending life. Uh, in fact, we're probably just extending dying. We're not really extending living, right? And so imagine if do no harm meant help people live the most meaningful life possible. If that's what do no harm meant, imagine the kind of conversations we would have with patients if we were trying to help them live the most meaningful life possible. We wouldn't go down our checklist of things that need to happen. We would be asking them, what matters to you? What's important to you? How could I help you do that? And when, and when patients would like decline treatment or say, I'm not ready for that change, we'd say, okay, totally makes sense. Like, this is your life. I'm here to help you. Uh, and that sharing responsibility is really what is necessary for chronic disease management, because most of the work of chronic disease doesn't happen in the physician's office. It happens at home when we are not there, right? Now, there are all kinds of system level problems to making those kinds of changes, like, you know, insurance, professional liability, right, uh, regulations, all these things that put the responsibility on the healthcare provider, which is totally a bad idea, because you have no control over the patients and what they do in between sessions. It should not be a responsibility of the healthcare provider. But I honestly think healthcare providers don't want to give up control and they don't want to give up power to share that with the patient. For the record, you actually don't really have that control. It's like perceived control, but it's not really. If you are actually in medical practice, you know how many patients do not listen to you. And you know how many times you have the exact same conversations with people about the exact same behavior. So to think you actually have control over them is really like a falsehood. So why don't we acknowledge that and actually share responsibility with the patient? What matters to you? What's important to you? And how can I help you be the healthiest so you can do those things that matter to you? Right. Uh, uh, physicians often talk about not having enough time. Again, system level problem that does not let them have enough time with patients. But if you're having the same conversation with a patient again and again and again, you actually totally have time to have a different conversation. Right. You have time to do a traffic light assessment. 
find out what they're actually ready to change. You have time to say, tell me what matters to you in your life and how I can help you, right? If you're repeatedly having the same conversation and nothing is changing, then you definitely have time to have a different conversation. And so that would be what I would encourage, you know, physicians to think about is like, my job isn't to make you as healthy as possible. My job isn't to help you avoid death for as long as possible. My job is to help you live the most meaningful life possible. And if that was my starting point, I would have totally radically different conversations with people. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that, um, to live the most meaningful life possible. And I um, often will start conversations when I will see a change in patients when their face lights up because one, they've never been yeah. told that before. And right. two, um, to understand they have a trusted partner to make decisions right. and not just being told one more thing to do they're exactly. already exhausted, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I love that approach. Looking at the aspirations, um, I, that's fabulous. Um, maybe when we're done here, I, I have a question for you when we're done with the podcast. But um, love to interact further with you. And I had some ideas. Um, I have also found there's a, another really cool thing that. Um, we found successful with patients is this kind of this reinforcement of positive self conversation and talk. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Shad. Um, uh, are you familiar with the positive self talk? What to say when you talk to yourself? Amherstead. Um, really interesting. So he's he he started out his life as a linguist, which was really interesting. Psychologist, linguist, military. And then he just, he started understanding that um, it's almost like these, he says, you know, the programs that you're taught when we're children, right? How, how do, again, it kind of goes back to that environment, you know, that we're not in control of. We can't, like you speak to that in the book about we can't choose our parents or genetics, such and such, which makes complete sense. But then we do have control of our current decisions, right? How do we choose to engage in the world? Um, but he he's created a, interesting programs where it's just like 10 to 15 minutes where you listen in the background to just I am statements. <clears throat> and um, and it's not your own voice. It's someone else's like, you know, what is your goal? Is it living a more positive life? And a lot of his programs are about improving self-esteem, uh, positive living. And the things about weight have nothing to do with weight. It's all about <laughs> uh, choices and stuff. And what's interesting is I love this stuff because I and mean, I play it. And I, I, you do hear that chatter, the bus passengers, um, the mental discussions that are going on constantly change. It kind of shifts a little bit. Um, And I've had patients have that same success. Um, Where does that fit into ACT? Is that, would that be part of the mindfulness piece? Is that, how would you describe that in the ACT uh, context? So we would definitely, you know, uh, suggest for people when you're thinking, when those thoughts pop up, which are automatic, they're part of your survival brain. Uh, rather than asking yourself if they're true or false, ask yourself if it's going to move you towards or away from what matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's going to move you away, then the technical term is diffusion. We're trying to unhook from those thoughts. We're trying to have them not, we're trying to basically get that passenger to not take over your bus. You don't have to convince yourself it's not true. You just have to convince yourself that it's going to move you away from what matters. And so, uh, you know, our, our newest version of our training and stuff includes a tool called the matrix, which has this question about, is it moving you towards or away? And it's something that we've, you know, it's an act-based tool. We've added to kind of our training and things like that. We use it for leadership training, DEI training, but also healthy habits, um, chronic disease management. Uh, And so, you know, it would be about recognizing that is that thought taking over your bus or not? And is it taking you where you want it to go? And then there are a lot of skills that we can teach from ACT about what to do with those thoughts. Then once they show up, once you recognize them, once you notice them, um, to how to unhook from them so that they're not taking over your bus. Um, and the one we describe in the book, which is one of my favorites, is like drop the football, which is if your thought was a football, you can run with the football. It's like, yeah, I'm never going to be able to do this. Why do, am I trying? What's the point? It's kind of running with the football. Or you could put the football down, which just mentally to say to yourself, is this football I need to put down, right? Or like, Dana, put the football down, (laughs) right? Which doesn't get rid of the thought. It just helps you not have it take over your bus. And I think that's the thing is people think the thought itself has to go away, but we don't have the capability of doing that. You just need to unhook that thought from your behavior. You just need to help it not take over your bus and not take you places you didn't mean to go. And ACT can help a lot with those kinds of skills. 
So, um, you know, there was a study done about uh, people who consider themselves lucky and then people who consider themselves unlucky. And they had to read a scenario and then just talk about the scenario. And one of the scenarios was you're in a bank, you go to the bank and while you're at the bank, there's a robbery and you get shot in the arm. Right. And so the unlucky people are like, oh, my gosh, how unlucky am I? I go to the bank and I get shot. Right. The lucky people were like, how lucky am I? I only got shot in my arm. Right. Which kind of tells you that maybe the lucky people are actually having some pretty crappy life experiences, but they have somehow managed to interpret them as lucky. Right. And so when we think about those pathways, you know, which pathway are you like furthering? If you think about it like a wheelbarrow that you're pushing over bumpy ground and it makes a little groove if you keep pushing it in that groove, which grooves are you reinforcing? Which grooves are you making deeper? Are you reinforcing the I'm unlucky story? Or are you reinforcing the I'm lucky story? If you keep, you know, we have to, most of us won't automatically think the lucky option, but we could deliberately think of the lucky option, right? Which is your automatic thought might be like, how unlucky am I? But then you could choose to say, actually, I could see the lucky part about this. And the more you choose to see the lucky way of seeing that, the more you reinforce that pathway, that neural pathway, that groove in the wheelbarrow. And then the more likely you will spontaneously have lucky thoughts or lucky interpretations, right? And so, but the real trick there is you can't get rid of the unlucky thoughts. Those are automatic processes, right? You need to notice when they show up. We call it the three ends. Notice it name it and normalize it, right? Oh, this is just mm -hmm. my like survival brain. Oh, there's an unlucky thought or, right? Um, there's an emotion that's normal to have so that you can let it go. So you can drop the football. So you can have it not take over your bus so that you can move mm -hmm. towards what matters. So you can do what matters to you. No, that's great. This is, is it's comes down to mindfulness, right? You're, it's kind of like a, the yeah. brain technique I've certainly been is recognize you acknowledge you yep. become inquisitive and then note it right you normalize it 100 yep. percent makes complete sense um i really like that uh the unlucky behavior and the rut because uh the gentleman i was speaking to he kind of he also speaks to that it's like the more you utilize that and you almost start exactly. looking for if you think you're unlucky you almost start looking yeah. for opportunities to make sure that you're still yes this is the way my life is supposed to be so the brain's like okay let's just keep <laughs> yeah exactly um, it's, exactly it's really yeah. fascinating i am curious it kind of steps outside of the psychology strictly psychology um there's some really interesting you know research on psychology and how it affects your biology right um interesting study on and maybe you're probably familiar with it but where they were some kiddos and they were being treated with um shots for allergies right? In, in small incremental doses and your body becomes kind of used to it. It's, it's a very simplified way to describe, it. but they took two cohorts and kiddos, some kiddos were said, you know, basically this is what's going to happen. Take this medication, you know, good care. The other one was given that same information plus changing the mindset or reframing what was happening. Your body is going to be getting better. It's doing what it's supposed to do. And what was really interesting was the, the ones that had this kind of more positive psychology component on it, they did much, much better, like statistically significant, better in the sense of how they responded, had, you know, less um, allergic reactions, so forth. How, where can people learn about that? Or what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, it's like the placebo effect, which we've sort of mm -hmm. described as like a nuisance effect, but it's actually the most consistent effect we have ever found in any medication study in like on the planet forever, <laughs> right? And it actually shouldn't be called the placebo effect. It should be called like the power of harnessing the human mind, right? Mm -hmm. Because our minds have a tremendous impact on uh, what, how we experience, like everything has to get processed through your brain and it can process it in dramatically different ways. Again, the same the same experience can be processed in dramatically different ways. And our brains like help us with what to expect next. And so they shape our experiences in profound ways that we're only really just learning to understand. They have an enormous, there is not a single physical like ailment or illness that is not impacted by psychological factors. This division between body and mind is a ridiculous one. Your body and mind doesn't know that for the record, it all acts together. And so separating those two things is a ridiculous thing that we've done that it does not reflect 
impact how humans function. Uh, they are all completely interconnected. And so whether that's HIV, cancer, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, they are all interconnected with each other. And so uh, again, I think we can be like harnessing that human power if we understand it better and if we make use of it and if we understand that it's not just like positive thinking, it's about recognizing those negative thoughts show up. Congratulations, you're a well-functioning human. That's just how humans work, right? Once they show up, then you have a choice, not whether they show up. And whether they show up isn't an indicator of anything. It's only an indicator you've had the thought before. It doesn't have to mean something, right? Mm. You can choose what you, how you wanna behave. You can choose how you want to interpret the situation. That requires a lot of frontal lobe battery right? It requires like intention and it requires mindfulness and, and noticing. And so it's not an easy thing to do, but humans are entirely capable of it. And I think the mm -hmm. biggest thing like impacting humans right now is just that everyone is so burnt out. Everyone is just so enormously tired and worn out from the pandemic and from the life after the pandemic, which frankly has not gone back to normal. And this thing that we do where we're pretending like life is back to normal is a terrible idea because it's really not back to normal. We are faced with all right. kinds of uncertainties that we were not faced with before the pandemic that is hugely stressful for our survival brain. And basically our batteries are not charging well, like having like an old cell phone that like drains really quickly or like never fully recharges. <laughs> we're just all on low battery. I'm often like there are no frontal lobes anywhere right now and that's really what we need help with right now both like healthcare providers we know is like a major problem but pretty much everyone in the world is just worn out and burnt out and so it's very hard to make change when you can't even charge your battery and so we really need to be like readjusting expectations and being a lot kinder to ourselves about what's realistic right 100 percent. no I that's Oh, I could continue this conversation for another hour, but I, I want to be uh, very mindful of the time that we had scheduled. So I want to say thank you and please share, you know, where can people, we didn't even get to your workplace. Maybe we should schedule another interview all yeah. about your workplace wellness, goodness. Um, but can you share with like, where can people connect with you, learn more about your work and get your book, please. And we'll put that in yes. the show notes, but it's here Absolutely. as well. So, uh, and the thing we're working on now is basically an app-based version of the book. So we have like digitized the matrix. We've digitized act skills into an app um, where you can get all kinds of tips from Dr. Dana about all kinds of topics. Our first uh, courses are actually on burnout, both burnout for everyone and then burnout for leaders, because there's a very specific skill set that leaders can do that will actually help make um, system level change. And we know that is needed. And so the fastest way you can make system level change is actually through leadership. Uh, we tested a uh, program with physician leaders during the pandemic and found that it was effective in reducing their own stress levels and burnout levels um, and taught them skills like things like psychological safety and conflict management and all these like people skills that become really uh, challenging for leaders that they're often not trained in. And so we're putting all of that content into an app where you can do five minutes a day. We know have no one has any batteries. And so how can we make it as easy as possible, right? So you can do five minute uh, a day kind of interactions and have that daily support, right? I'm often like, what happens for the people in between their therapy sessions? There's no support for them. Uh, and so that's what this app is designed to do. And so you can access information um, about my services at uh, dlba.ca. Um, and you can also access information about the app at impact.app. So I'll provide all of that, uh, those links. Uh, you can, uh, the app will soon be available so you can sign up to get an early copy of it. Um, and you can find out uh, other things about the services that we offer at www.dlba.ca. Great, and your um, personal website, is that your doc, the DL? That's the, yeah. it's the dlba.ca, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Perfect. Yeah, and it's impactme.app is the website. And so I can send impactme.app. I don't know if I said that properly, but um, I'll send both the links to you. Perfect. Awesome. And we'll mm -hmm. make sure everyone has that access to that. But um, thank you, Dr. Dana, for your time You're today. Welcome. This was yeah. fantastic. And um, I'm sure there will be another interview. There must be because I have yeah, so many more I'm questions. Yeah, I'm happy to come back. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, this will just be, I think, part one of some cool uh, conversations. So uh, thanks again. And um, everyone, if you have any other questions, uh, feel free to message me and uh, we'll go from there.